you know, people out there responsible for payroll functions. It's becoming more and more and more complex to stay abreast of all these rules. So making sure they've got appropriate sources of guidance and information coming through to keep them on top of these things. Because if they just rely on HMRC guidance, then they'll be behind the curve, sure. you know, on, on some of these matters. So I think it's really about where do I get that, that from? And obviously there's lots of sources out there. Welcome to the Payroll Podcast with your host, Nick Day. Find out what it takes to truly discover what it takes to elevate your career within payroll as we meet with the industry leaders who are shaping the industry for tomorrow. So right now, I am sat in Canary Wharf in the beautiful Deloitte offices, and I'm about to be joined on the Payroll Podcast sofa by Helen Kay and Chris Robson. Now, Helen is the partner who leads Deloitte's global employment services practice across the regions. But until very recently, she also led the Deloitte national team responsible for providing payroll advisory services to clients. And that would have included strategic advice, vendor selection, payroll reviews and payroll implementations. Helen is now focusing most of her time on pay governance. That's very much going to be the focus of today's podcast. So do stay tuned. She's the partner responsible nationally for Deloitte's pay governance services. Prior to Deloitte, she also spent 11 years with the HMRC. So this is one expert who really knows her stuff. But we're not just joined by one. We're also joined by Chris Robson. Now, he's Deloitte's pay governance specialist. And having spent many, many years advising clients on areas such as national minimum wage, holiday pay, gender pay gap reporting, and pensions auto enrollment, the fact is, and sorry, Chris, it's quite a sad fact, but the truth is you're probably the person who has spent the longest time supporting employers with their national minimum wage compliance. And we know that pay governance is a consistently hot topic. So get your notebooks out, get your pens at the ready to take notes. We're about to dive deep into issues, including the government's good work plan, holiday pay rights and wider worker rights, as well as the single enforcement body consultation. This is a really insightful podcast you're going to enjoy. And Chris and Helen bring with it a wealth of experience and a great sense of humour as well. So sit back, relax. Here we go. Five quick questions. So let's dive straight into the detail. Let's jump into the questions. I'm going to start with yourself, Chris. I wondered if you could just describe to our listeners a little bit more about what the Good Work Plan is and how it came about. Uh, yep. So, um, so the Good Work Plan is really the, uh, the worker rights element of the government industrial strategy. Um, so uh, over the last few years, government have been uh, driving towards understanding what the workforce of UK PLC looks like. Um, and that's not just employees, um, but also the gig economy and those in the self-employed bucket as well. And, and really what they have done is gone out to uh, to a number of people and said, look, let's have a look around um, UK PLC. What's working well? What isn't? Can we come up with some recommendations? And one of the main reports which came out of that was the Taylor Review, so Matthew Taylor. Um, and basically, he came up with a number of um, recommendations, and many of those recommendations were adopted by, by government over the, over the last few years, which has led on to a number of consultations. Sure. So by way of background, mm-hmm. tell me a little bit more, Helen, if you can, about the good work journey, plan journey. So how did it really, you mentioned the Matthew Taylor report there, give us a little bit more context. 
Yeah, so as Chris mentioned, uh, you know, Matthew Taylor was instrumental in pulling that report together. And um, what then happened was off the back of that, the government produced a, a strategy to say, OK, how do we now put in place a number of these recommendations? And in great government style, it leads to yet more consultations and so on. And one of the things that um, was really recommended by um, Matthew Taylor and coming out of the Good Work Plan was that there should be something called a single enforcement body. And so a single enforcement body, uh, which is currently being consulted on, is really looking to say, okay, all the different elements of paid governance, should we have those governed by one enforcement body? And if we do, what should that enforcement body look like? And for your listeners who are thinking, well, what do you mean by enforcement body? If I can use an example, if we go back a number of years, um, national minimum wage, uh, it was decided that HM Revenue and Customs would be responsible for enforcing compliance with national minimum wage. And off the back of that, they really got together a full process to go out to UK PLC and really undertake very detailed reviews to make sure that organisations were being compliant with all the intricacies of the national minimum wage rules. And you can decide what you might think about it, depending on which side of the fence you're on and, and whether you've been through one of those reviews. But ultimately, it's been seen as a real success because the amount of um, additional monies coming back through to employees from errors that have been made by business as part of identification through these reviews has been significant. Um, and for anyone who's been through those reviews, you'll also know that we'll have seen this in the press. That review had with it teeth. So when I mean teeth, I mean real teeth in the sense of penalties. So the current penalty is 200% of the amount that then is repaid to the employees. Wow. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, not only um, the, you know, the hard fact of hard penalties, but in addition to that, there's also naming and shaming. So this is why the, the press has been very um, on top of this and, and, and has been out there whenever the naming and shaming list gets produced. And let's remember, you only need to have an aggregate underpayment of £100 or more to get on that naming and shaming list. It's been a real damaging factor to businesses when it comes to their, their employee brand. So when we're talking about a single enforcement body, what we're talking about is, should we have something that potentially looks like that type of enforcement, but across a number of different worker rights? So things like holiday pay um, and, and a whole host of other things which I'm sure Chris is, is going to come on yeah. to as well. So I know that um, you've been delivering consultations Chris and obviously this is work that you do, you work with clients to bring them up to speed in, in what you know, the good work plan, how it affects them and what's happening. For those listening to this at the moment who perhaps despite the news aren't as familiar, maybe they're a payroll manager going okay, kind of know what the good work plan is but I don't really know how that affects me. Can you just give us a little bit more, I guess, information around how it's affecting payroll departments and from a payroll manager that perhaps isn't up to speed, why this is important and why this is like, directly affecting me? Yeah, so Helen's mentioned the, the national minimum wage there, there and, and that is really being used as a trailblazer. So I think most, most people who have been through a, a, a national minimum wage inquiry over the last few years will say that they've never really experienced a national minimum wage inquiry before. Sure. So the whole frequency um, is one factor. And then the, the approach by HMRC in that instance is, is very different to even how 
their colleagues in other parts of HMRC will approach a tax and national insurance um, review or, or inquiry. Um, the, the, the direction of travel based on this single enforcement body consultation is that we're also then going to have this body that covers, as Helen says, things like uh, holiday pay, uh, the gangmaster regulations, the employment agency regulations, and maybe some other um, areas as well. So it will be a one-stop shop for all worker rights. Um, and, so, and so if you look at the landscape at the moment of if you have a, an employee who is disgruntled over a, 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 whether it's minimum wage or holiday pay, that whichever area t- it is, it'll differ which body they go to to, to say, look, I have a problem. So you know, national minimum wage, yes, they'd go to ACAS first and then that would be passed on to HMRC. Uh, if it's holiday pay, they really need to bring a claim through the tribunals. Okay. Um, whereas if it's within the gang masters or the employment agencies uh, field, then then there's a different part <laughs> of government that looks after that as well. So you know, looking at the models in say Australia or Ireland or France, they already have similar enforcement bodies where they will those bodies will proactively go out and undertake a review of worker rights more generally rather than just you know, the, the topic of national minimum wage or something like that. I think to add to that, if, we, if we're being balanced about this, there would be a lot of positives coming out from a single enforcement body. So, um, yes, it does mean there could be an awful lot more focus and employers could expect more scrutiny and um, a, a much larger degree of controlled review by that body. However, I think the two real positives would be, first of all, from an employee or a worker perspective, it gives them a really easy access route to get to the bottom of what could be um, issues and challenges that they are experiencing. And as Chris mentioned, at the minute, that can be incredibly difficult. Often they have to you know, raise a claim and go to tribunal. Many are put off by doing that because One, it can be very time consuming, it can be incredibly stressful, it can be potentially costly, but also if they're in employment, they can also be fearful about, well, what does that actually mean for me to raise a claim whilst I'm in employment against my employer? So I think from an employee perspective, that is, or or a worker, um, obviously, and there's a distinction between the two, um, I think that that's a real positive. On the other side, I think business can benefit as well because they've been very balanced in the consultation around what that enforcement body would be there for. And and one of the things that uh, the enforcement body would really be there for would be to provide better guidance, better support to business to understand and navigate their way through all of these very complex and evolving rules. So I think if we had one enforcement body, it would be much more straightforward and simple to get appropriate support, which is absolutely what business is needing. You've covered a lot of this already, but I'm keen to know, so so what does a single enforcement body consultation suggest maybe in store for employers in particular? Uh, the single enforcement body would pretend, and, and, and this is not this is not an immediate play because of the political landscape at the moment, so um, what, what we foresee is, you know, something similar to the national minimum wage enforcement, but just across those different areas that, that we've, we've mentioned. Um, so, as Helen mentioned earlier, the, the naming and shaming and the penalties has been uh, very effective uh, in the eyes of government. Uh, but this consultation also goes a little bit further. And, and again, whether this will happen in practice, I'm not so sure. But there is also reference in there to poten- potentially um, joint responsibility within the supply chain as well. So if we take the example of a supermarket supply chain, potentially 
a supplier that within that supply chain to the, to that supermarket fails on worker rights somehow, would the supermarket be held jointly responsible? So naming and shaming and penalties for that um, for that for, for the supermarket as well, and taking it a step further. Um, there also uh, is reference in there to the withholding of goods as well. So uh, would the goods of that supplier effectively be frozen in the supply chain so that um, that can't move up the supply chain and, and ultimately would affect the, the supermarket as well? So that's where we could potentially end up based on the way this, this consultation is written. So essentially, it's going to result in more coordination, pooled intelligence and better support to businesses if we're pulling these things together which would be seen as a positive right uh yeah absolutely um i i think that's the aim the aim is for to make sure that businesses are compliant but they're supported in meeting that compliance obligation in order that workers receive the rights that are expected and that are due to them under the law so you know at big picture level absolutely i think uh what some what business is nervous about is some of the guidance at the minute is a bit poor, to be quite frank, yeah. you know, it's quite ambiguous. Um, and it, it's often, we're working in many cases with legislation that just isn't suitable for modern working practices. So working practices are evolving and changing. They're changing at a rate much, much quicker than the legislation. So you, you have, you know, sets of legislation that say one thing. And then, you know, for poor people in, in, in the HR teams and the payroll teams and within business trying to then work out, okay, well, how does that apply practically to how my workers are actually working? The disconnect between the two is, is difficult. So what they then need is clear guidance. And the guidance at the minute is quite ambiguous. So there is a hope that with one single enforcement body, some of that ambiguity would be removed and that would really, really help business. Um, on the other side of the coin, Businesses that have been through large-scale national minimum wage reviews will know that it can be really quite painful, regardless of the outcome, um, you know, and, and whether anything is or is not uh, owing at the end, end of the review. The actual process of going through the review in terms of the quantity of data, uh, the information, the time it takes, that can put an awful lot of burden on the internal teams, both HR reward teams and, of course, payroll teams. So, that in itself is quite difficult. And I think that the fear is actually if you suddenly start having a whole host of this diff these different types of reviews because the enforcement agency really gets its act together and gets out there and starts to undertake structured and systematic reviews, is that, you know, do, do you almost reinvent an entirely new team that just have to be there to deal with handling these reviews? Sure, sure. I imagine there's a number of power managers listening to this podcast right now who are with their head in their hands saying this is not a new thing with HMRC all the guidance isn't quite as up to speed as it should be with the speed that the compliance is changing right and often mm -hmm. this is a common problem that they have where new, new compliance and legislation changes but the guidelines don't quite come out as quickly as they should and it's a common problem that power managers are faced with or frustration should I say yeah it, it is and, and to a large extent we rely upon payroll systems and HR systems to support us around that and you know kind of sticking with the theme of national minimum wage it's quite clear that because of the way that national minimum wage has evolved over the last 20 odd years, um, the, the payroll uh, software and also the way advice has been provided to clients around um, the writing of contracts and everything else has meant that 
um, there have been these failures, which are now only coming to light because of the increased enforcement. Um, so I do foresee over the next few years, especially if this single enforcement, as this single enforcement body evolves, we are going to kind of be moving the dial a little bit more back to uh, spending time on compliance matters rather than you know, being able to spend a bit more time being a little bit more strategic, mm-hmm. really. So how fearful should a, a, a business be? I'm, I'm thinking, okay, I work in recruitment, not payroll, but GDPR being an interesting mm-hmm. example where the GDPR legislation came in, everyone went crazy to make sure they were compliant, and then actually, in terms of enforcement, the ICO didn't really have the, the numbers to enforce the legislation to make sure people were compliant quickly enough. Are we going to have a similar problem in this situation, or do you think the enforcement body will get that together quick enough where employers need to be fearful and make sure they have their, you know, their ducks lined up quickly? Um, so it's an interesting one, and I, I will gaze into my crystal ball because at the minute it is still consultation, so we, we don't know. However, there's a double edge here, isn't there, in terms of extra enforcement means that what would be deemed to be our most vulnerable workers in society are getting what's due to them so there's there's definitely a you know kind of there's a slant there that says this is an important thing to do equally with penalties you know significant penalties do go into the treasury so is that you know essentially self-funding and what we've seen with um national minimum wage is when they uh when they really said okay we are now going to enforce this and and, and we're going to put a, a proper process in place where we can really get into the detail the government did put money behind it so we saw a significant investment in the number of staff that were involved um, and upskilling of staff involved at HMRC in the compliance so the numbers please don't quote me on this and I'm not going to be audited but I think the numbers went nationally from about 75 people up to about 350 people you know and there was something like 25 million pounds worth of investment put into that team so when you're talking that order of magnitude that really did enable them to put the teeth behind it I think you know if they're going to do this and we do move into a single enforcement agency or body then it's likely that we'll see something similar as well because they will want to make a statement sure. around this. Um, so, so, so my view is, yes, I think they probably will put investment around it. Can they claw that investment back through potential penalties that are raised as part of the process? Quite possibly. It sounds significant enough where it needs to be taken, taken very seriously. Now, you've mentioned holiday pay a few times um, and you've explained holiday pay enforcement that they might be brought under the remit of this potential new government body. So can you explain a little bit more for the listeners around the issues that are surrounding holiday pay? Yeah, so so um, holiday pay is one of those areas that has been kicking around for, for a while. Um, it, it's led by um, EU law that's, that's effectively you know, being tried and brought into the UK sphere. Um, here in the UK, we really um, probably don't uh, calculate holiday entitlement and holiday pay in the same way as some of our neighbours in, in the EU. Uh, effectively, where we've got to with through case law and um, the, 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 the case law evolving over a number of years is that there are probably a number of employers and systems which are probably calculating holiday pay in a different way to where the case law sits at the moment. And the case law does continue to evolve as well. And ultimately, the the example would be that, you know, if somebody goes on holiday and doesn't receive um, the average kind of normal remuneration that they would receive on the run-up to their holiday, 
then potentially the employee could bring a claim against the, the worker. So um, people might have heard of the Locke versus British Gas case, which which considered whether commissions should be averaged and yeah. effectively paid. Um, and, and similarly, you know, there's there's um, cases like uh, Bear Scotland and the Freightliner cases, which talked about commissions and uh, sorry overtime and the like. So. Um, what what we are seeing is that some work, some employers are actually getting a grip with this and have made changes already. There are others who are aware of it; it's on their radar, but might not have really done much or are taking the ostrich approach of sticking their head in the sand. Uh, and then there are some employers who where this just isn't on their radar at the moment, but it, it is something that they're going to need to think about over the next few years. And, and and so, as I mentioned, it's case law at the moment that's driving this. We don't have legislation and regulation other than we will, from April 2020, have um, a change in the law around the reference period. So looking back 52 weeks rather than uh, 12, which kind of case law has got us to. And so we're going to end. We, we're going to end up potentially if we have a, a single enforcement body, and we're going to have um, you know officers a little bit like HMRC officers enforcing this uh, the, the holiday pay rights. Then we're going to have to have legislation and regulation. And you know, as we've seen with national minimum wage, if you don't get the legislation and the regulations and the guidance right, that can create a. a, a Big headache for both employers and and the officers who are sure. who are looking to enforce that as well. I, I never actually realised that there wasn't any specific legislation or regulations that determined how holiday pay should be calculated. So, so we, we do have we do have legislation which talks about entitlements, but but here in the UK we've traditionally paid people their basic pay yeah. and they go on holiday rather than. Uh, kind of like the average of their pay. So things like oh, where they work regular overtime, earn regular commission, earn regular allowances, that isn't really thought of. And, and for many employers, they are led by how their payroll provider has has kind of set up their system, sure. how it was done last that when, when that payroll provider worked with the last employer in that industry. Um, and, and so you, you, you do see a lot of industries where it's a common error and it's always the same one. So what, what government guidance is, is coming out on how to calculate holiday pay going forward? Do we know the answer to that yet? Um, so so the, the real change um, is, as I mentioned, from, from April 2020, um, there is um, going to be a change for the reference period to effectively be across a 52-week period on the run-up to the holiday rather than at the moment kind of the 12 or 13 week average period um, and then in addition to that um, there we do have some guidance out already which effectively looks very complicated from a calculation perspective because what it, it drives you to do is look at anybody with variable pay and identify their average pay on a week basis, even where they are paid, say monthly, monthly. like, and so and so systems are going to need to be able to deal with that um, as as this continues to evolve. And, and are there any other implications for these changes around holiday holiday pay you know, for employers and, and people within payroll and HR? Um, so, so so they're going to have to be able to deal with queries that start coming through from individuals. So. As, as more publicity around this um, comes to the fore, and you know there are a number of cases which have been stayed in the in the tribunals and the courts behind some of the bigger cases, yeah. 
um, we're going to we're going to see more of this. Um, some of the unions already have this on their radar and have spoken to a number of the larger employers. Um, but but we are seeing more and more activity. So you're going to be able you're going to have to be able to actually understand what the issues are and be able to respond to those queries and ultimately be able to have conversations with your software providers to say, well, what are what are the uh, what is the functionality within there, and what changes do we need to make? That, as a recruiter, as a, or a sales professional, as it essentially is, I'd imagine any business in the UK that has a sales or commission-based workforce <laughs> are going to be putting in huge numbers of inquiries to their payroll departments to say, what am I going to be paid over holiday pay? Yeah, I mean, I, I see the challenge for so if you, so a payroll department, I see the real challenge is keeping abreast of all the case law, and and then understanding. At what point do I need to respond to that case law versus actually can I just wait and see until something forms precedent or something then becomes into actual law? And, it, and it's keeping abreast of the change. And, you know, you're in that that situation where payroll is responsible for applying the policy and getting the payroll calculations correct. But ultimately, you, they're then linking in with reward teams, um, HR teams, finance teams, and it's the, the real challenge is for them to constantly be at the front and understanding and, and getting sources of information that enable them to make the right decisions or flag to other teams that are responsible for policy when something needs to happen. And to my mind, that's the, that's the real challenge. So I think, you know, people are there um, uh, responsible for payroll functions it's becoming more and more and more complex to stay abreast of all these rules. So making sure they've got appropriate sources of guidance and information coming through to keep them on top of these things. Because if they just rely on uh, HMRC guidance, then they'll be behind the curve, sure. you know, on, on some of these matters. So I think it's really about where do I get that that from? And obviously, there's lots of sources out there. I think one of the things I love about that response, Helen, is for many power managers out there at the moment and the conversations I'm having regularly is this fear of automation which is yeah. coming whether we like it or not in terms of some of the, the more menial tasks but I think that's a great example of where you still need you know genuine payroll expertise mm-hmm. to handle this legislative changes the speed of changes to understand policy you know to outsource that to a chatbot for example with the number of inquiries coming in is going to be quite complex um, so I think for those, whether you're up to speed with the Good Work Plan or not, and what's coming, if nothing else, knowing that uh, you know there's, there's a real requirement to say a policy, which needs that human element, I think uh, the power managers will, will like to hear that response yeah. that you've just given. Absolutely, and, and, and you know, and I think for a, for a payroll manager as well to be able to take, there will be policy changes. Business, you know, businesses will be changing their policies, and then with policy change comes process change to affect that. And it's about saying, okay. That might be all well and good. We've got this new fantastic policy that does everything it needs to do, but my payroll system can't deal with this. And now, yes, I need everything to be automated, but all of a sudden I've got, you know, I've got manual intervention needs to come into play. Well, that's not good enough. So now I need to go through, you know, changing the, the system, whichever operating system you're working on, to make sure that it can meet the policy. And the two at the minute, I think, often are disconnected. And so you've got payroll teams having to come up with solutions to these challenges that more often than not are just not ideal. Sure, sure. And, and technology has a, a bigger part to play as well where you do get a claim from an individual. So you know, let's assume that you can get the system working for the future. But actually, we've worked with a lot of employers where they've had to look at the historic 
um, liability when when somebody comes to say, look, I think I am due some extra some extra pay, and you've got to layer over that um, all of your HR and uh, payroll data. Where do you get that from to do a calculation? And what does that? How does that actually interact with the ability to bring a claim? You know, from from a legal perspective as well. So it can get quite complicated both forward-looking as well as historic-looking. Of course, if you are a payroll manager listening to this and a little bit worried now about some legislation that's changing and you need some support or guidance to our consultancies like yourselves who are, are helping payroll managers and, and employers to make sure they are speaking for legislation correctly. And I will, for those interested, put uh, the contact details for both Chris and Helen in the episode notes. If you're interested, go to the episode notes, find their contact details, and you can reach out to Deloitte directly if you are worried about any of the, the topics that we're discussing at the moment. So could the Good Work Plan change as the political landscape starts to evolve? Um, yes, it, it could change. Uh, however, I think, you know, regardless of what um, colour of government we may have, or, or multicolours of government that we may actually have um, in power at the time, it, it, it's unlikely that worker rights are going to fall off the radar. If anything, any change in government is likely to mean that worker rights is amplified even more so. So there could be changes around existing plans, there could be changes around timescales for implementation, um, but do we see these issues falling out of priority? Absolutely not. And, and we do think that worker rights is something that is going to continually involve and strengthen, and it is a focus of all the government, uh, all of the political parties. Sure, fantastic. So uh, we want to find out now, and just go into the other section to find out a little bit more about the two of you, just to bring you guys to life a little bit here as well from outside of the compliance and the data and the policy. This is just a quick advert to let you know that if you haven't heard the latest payroll song that's doing the rounds and was played recently at the CIPP conference, then you don't want to miss it. It's called My Payroll Career. It's available now on iTunes and Amazon Play, YouTube and other sources as well. If you love payroll like we do, then go check it out. Payroll is changing and the landscape is looking bright. We look to new technologies to show us the light. Chatbots, AI and robotic process automations. Introducing blockchain and other innovations. The fact remains that payroll is essential and critical. Should have governance at a level that is ministerial. Titles changing to become a payroll analytical. Brexit will bring changes too, but hey, let's not get political. See, I love payroll. That was My Payroll Career, available now on iTunes, Amazon Play, YouTube and more. So check it out. Right, back to the podcast. Time to find out more about you. So, uh, Chris, if I start with yourself, which individual has influenced your career so much today? So uh, I, would, I would actually say uh, an inspector at HMRC who is no longer there. Okay. Um, so... Uh, I think there's a, there's a sad fact that I've done an awful lot of national minimum wage in my life and provided a lot of support to clients around that. Uh, and a lot of uh, my knowledge and relationships came from a guy called Gabriel Murphy, who, who was a fantastic inspector in terms of, you know, he could enforce the rules the way they needed to be done, but also did it in a supportive way. Uh, and I definitely think back on my career and think, yeah, I, I've learned an awful lot from, from the way that he operated. Excellent. I've been doing these podcasts for, for a while now. It's the first time I've ever had an HMRC inspector as the influencer. <laughs> so 
Let's take that bottle out. That's great. That's good. And you spent 11 years with HMRC. I did, yeah, at the start of my career. So I, I came straight out of school into HMRC, um, really enjoyed my time there in, in civil service, uh, 11 years, and then decided, okay, it's time to, to move on and do something a bit different. So I've now been at Deloitte for uh, 20 years. Um, I can't really pinpoint any one individual as to who's been the most influential around my career. What I would say is what I think is hugely important is I've had role models. I've seen people that have succeeded. And what I've been able to do is say, well, do you know what? I really like that about what they've done, or I really like their leadership style, or I really like how they manage or navigate this situation. And I've always been one, I'm a bit of a sponge. So I've always been one for saying, you know, I want as many mentors around me and people that one can advocate for me, but two can really offer support. So I've always gone out and sought that and worked with lots of different people that I respect who've had great careers and taken what I can from them. And I think that's really helped me in terms of my career and, and, and how it evolved. Fantastic. Well, as you basically multiple shout outs there without giving any individual names, if you like. So what about from a resources perspective? Are there any particular resources that either of you have had that have really helped your careers? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to do a shout out to my other half, actually, because, um, you know, I know it's not a, a direct payroll resource, but but I've in this working environment that's quite a tough and challenging working environment, I couldn't have done this without the support of having somebody at home that was really, really supportive to enable my career to go where it has. And what I mean by that is, you know, he will happily sit there and hear the issues and challenges and interesting intricacies of pay governance and payroll, etc. Um, and he's always there to, uh, you know, lift me at the end of a hard working day. So I do really think I'd want to do a shout out to uh, to Andy, actually, right. who, who has really helped me um, throughout my career in, in terms of being successful. It takes a unique individual, let's be fair, to go home. My wife is the same and listen <laughs> to think the issues that affect payroll if you're not in payroll. So well, considering he's, you know, he's got his own dog walking company so we couldn't be a different you know so sure. polar opposites of type of career but yeah he diligently sits there and listens with intent uh, you know intensely to what I have to say when I'm talking about my day at the office excellent well great shout out there for, for Andy how about yourself Chris um well I think you've stolen my thunder there because I, I, I've obviously got to say the same as well now <laughs> so, otherwise I'll get told no but, but, but my wife Lucy um we're a little bit different to Helen and Andy in that um, Lucy is also a tax advisor as well. So I can go home and have those same conversations. And, and she actually, uh, as well as being the sounding board, can actually provide some some advice and say, well, why don't you why don't you try this a different way? So so she's been fantastic. Mm-hmm. Great. Fantastic. So while I'm talking about individuals and inspirations, between the two of you all, individually, I don't mind. If you could invite three people to a dinner party, they can be dead or alive, who would they be and why? Oh, well, I'm just looking in the room here, and what better dinner party could you have than us three? I'll take that. Has <laughs> <laughs> it? Brilliant. I'll okay. Uh, from 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 my perspective, uh, I don't know whether I've, I can think of three. I mean, I, I I like the way that Richard Branson operates. Actually, um, I've read I've read his books, and uh, you know, got got a lot of time for, for the way that he operates. I think, given where we are at the moment, you'd have to have. Um, 
Mr. Attenborough mm-hmm. there. Um, and I think basically you don't need anybody else in the room because you could just say, right, tell us about nature and, and uh, everybody mm-hmm. sits back and, and, and sits with a glass of wine. Yeah. Definitely. I think you know, Attenborough, absolutely. I, I would love that. I also think uh, someone who would I think would be fascinating just because of what they've seen and then, uh, you know, their career and, and where they've gone is Michelle Obama. I think it would be really interesting to get the insights um, through you know, what she's gone through in her life, what she's seen, the challenges that have been faced, but then how inspirational she's been to so many people um, as well. I think it would be, she'd be a great guest. Excellent. I've just done the, uh, the radio type recording error that you never see, which I've been sat here nodding and realised that no one can see me nod. <laughs> so, okay, total agreement with all those. Excellent. Well, listen, we're going to jump to a quick advert break and then we're going to jump into part two. Have you ever asked yourself, how can I recruit payroll staff effectively? Please don't give up on your recruitment project just yet. Here at JGA Payroll Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top payroll talent. We also understand just how costly a poor payroll hire can be. JGA Recruitment are a niche payroll recruitment agency who will partner with you to resource payroll candidates who will improve both the accuracy and efficiency of your payroll department. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. Five technical questions. So I'd like to take the opportunity, if I can, to dig a little deeper into both your passions for payroll or pay governance in particular for yourself, Chris. Yeah. So with this in mind, what do you love most about payroll and what are the biggest challenges potentially that we've got ahead? Uh, so, so for me, um, I think my what, what I enjoy most is the fact that I'm, I'm helping so many clients with national minimum wage at the moment, um, actually being able to get to a position where we're not just telling them about this is a problem that you have, but, but getting to the solution. Um, and it's, it, it's, it's quite an interesting life cycle when you work with a client who has just, say, had uh, HMRC knock on the door. So you kind of go through that whole emotional cycle of uh, denial and disbelief to angry to, right, how do we, how do we start to sort this out? And so um, that's what I, that's what I kind of, take home at the end of the day is we've done a good job because we've been able to um, get the client to see where HMRC are coming from, um, what the business is doing at the moment and how to get it right. And and I think more widely, then being able to now understand, which which wasn't the case two or three years ago, but to understand that other employers are going through that pain as well. Sure. Um, and I think... From my perspective, it's always about people. Everything comes down to people. Uh, it's what I love in my job, that I meet different people every day um, and, and constantly uh, getting to know new people. So, And from a payroll perspective, you know, payroll department, unlike most other departments, absolutely touches people in real lives. You do a job really well and you get things right, which most payroll teams do day in, day out. They're the unsung heroes but when something goes wrong and somebody doesn't get paid, everybody knows about it. Yeah, so it's a yeah. bit like, you know, goalkeepers. Goalkeeper, goal, goalkeeper lets in, a, a, you know, a stinker of a goal and everybody talks about it, but they make five saves and it doesn't really get commented on that much. It, it's a similar thing. And so to my mind, it's that job satisfaction of knowing that 
in doing your job incredibly well, you are you are literally impacting people's lives because it's all about what they're taking home and then what they can then do with that uh, to feed their families, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's that real live side of things that I think brings what's deemed to be often you know an administrative function. It brings that to life. Absolutely love the goalkeeper analogy. I'm going to reuse that, by the way. I'm going to claim it as my own, Helen. That's really, really good. Just don't ask me the offside rule. Okay, no, I do know. I, I don't do understand know. it anymore. It's not too complex. It is a bit complex now. So if there was a paywall podcast subject, so I'm doing another podcast now that is going to come after this one, what's the one subject area that would really grab both of your attentions? Uh, so at the moment, you know, IR35 is is probably the, the biggest the biggest other area that we're advising on outside of the, the sphere of, of peer governance. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess the timing of this podcast will mean that employers really, really should be in a in a position where they've got their hands around it now. So so I am 35 for me. There's still time for that legislation potentially to change, of course, before April. And if it's going to be rolled out exactly as is, it's something that um, I'd be equally interested in listening to as a recruiter that's affecting yeah. my industry massively. How about yourself, Helen? Um well, absolutely, I, I agree with that. And for a lot of businesses where, you know, the use of contractors has been a, a core part to their business model and, and has evolved that way over recent years, what you're finding is actually it's going to be quite a significant impact on the payroll teams where withholdings, you know, they are essentially going to have to treat a number of those contractors on payroll. And so really thinking about, OK, well, how do I manage that? And um, what does that mean in terms of my my payroll, my function, my system? That's going to be really quite interesting. And as you say, my advice to clients at the minute is carry on, carry on preparing as if it's going to happen, because it's not the kind of thing that you'll just be able to switch on overnight if you're hoping that there's going to be, you know, um, a, a pause. Uh, then I think that that would be a little bit foolhardy. I think people do need to continue to be prepared um, because they wouldn't be able to just switch this on overnight if it does go ahead in April 2020, which I expect it likely will. Sure. And and I think another area as well would be be around the gender pay gap and the BAME reporting and how that's going to evolve. So as we move move into the third year of reporting, uh, I think most employers feel that they have their hands around how to get to the, the, the numbers that they need to report. More of the support that we're giving to clients now is around, well, what do those numbers mean? How do you reduce that gap? And, and with the, the consultation around the BAME numbers um, still being in play as well, what does that look like? Do you actually hold the information within your systems and to, to be able to, to start to look at those numbers when, as, as that evolves further? Mm-hmm. That ties in quite nicely with my next question, which is within the Deloitte consultancy practice, what kind of trends are you seeing at present? And what sort of work do you find yourself regularly supporting yourself, you know, the clients with, aside from governance? And you mentioned R35, which is mm-hmm. a fantastic element. People are, well, I'm here, interested in finding out more about R35. And again, look at the episode notes to, to, to get in touch with, with Chris or, or Helen. What, what other trends are you seeing in the market at the moment? I, absolutely. Businesses are focused on how can we do more to automate what we are doing, automate our process, make our processes more effective and efficient and free up our people to do to use their skills in different ways. Um, so being more strategic, uh, spending that time in other ways that adds additional value into the business. So pretty much right across the, 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 the spectrum of employment taxes and payroll, we are seeing this shift from are we getting the most out of our systems? Have we automated what we can? 
are our end-to-end processes as effective as they could be? And obviously, it's all set in the backdrop of, and do they meet the requirements at the start, which we talked about right at the start sure. of this podcast, those ever-evolving requirements and, and that people need to be compliant with? So a, futurist, a futuristic question then, because Deloitte and Wider Henry have to be ahead of the curve in terms of what's happening, not just in terms of legislation, but robotics, automation, technology, all of those elements that obviously form the, the guidance you give clients. If I asked you both to predict what pay will look like in 2025, which will soon be here, I'll come out quicker than we mm. think, how would that look like? What will the future of payroll look like in 2025? And so, so for me, um, and I, I appreciate people might not want to hear this, but, but it is going to be around the, the technology and the automation. Um, so maybe but I think more what I would like to see rather than maybe what might happen in that, in that you know, six, seven year period or whatever, would be um, getting to a position where the systems talk to each other um, in, a, in a much better way. So yeah. uh, from a consultant's perspective, you know, we work with clients where there are a number of different permutations of systems and really we could do with a more common linkage between them. And, and ultimately that would allow advisors such as Helen and I to, to, to maybe link into those systems in a, in a real-time basis to be able to help clients with their compliance and the, the strategy around around their payroll. Great. Um I I don't know if this will come to pass or not, so but I do think that from a payroll perspective it's going to be far more employee led or worker led in, in terms of being able to be way more flexible about how and when they get paid. We're already seeing this now with the start of, you know, businesses out there that are able to offer employees, actually, you don't just get paid at the end of the month, you can call on your pay, it's pay on demand, etc. I think that there could be a much greater degree of that, which in one way is fantastic for employees or workers. It's not so great for payroll teams who, who like process and like certainty in terms of, you know, they're going to have to think really creatively about, OK, how do we then keep abreast, abreast of that and remain compliant in that ever evolving and changing world where things um, where things can be way more agile. So I, I think that that might happen. Who knows? I could be proved totally wrong. I think the other side of things would be really what Chris was saying, but a lot more direct and automated interface. And I think there'll be direct and automated interface with government. So we already see um, a number of overseas locations where, so it's in Germany, for example, where there's a direct interface between a business and their payroll system and the authorities where, you know, so at the minute, okay, we've got RTI, for example, but more than that, you know, you, you you still have to make that interface happen. I just think it will be a seamless interface. Um, and so that level of automation where the information comes into the system and it automatically feeds through and feeds through to government and potentially other third parties, banks and so on, I think that that will happen. And then we'll have all the headaches of, well, how does that happen and how does GDPR interplay sure. with that? But I'm sure there are other advisors out there who are prepared to talk on that. So if you think we may or may not, obviously we're speculating here, have more, um, as you say, ministerial mm. conversation or transparency, I don't know what word useful, but in terms of that, that, that fluidity between yeah. conversations. Do you think by 2025, we may, payroll may have ministerial governance for payroll? Or do you think that will stay as is? Mm. That's a really interesting question. I think it is difficult in, in terms of 
the overall goal? Because payroll is an output, isn't it? It's an output of lots of different laws yes. <laughs> that, that um, you know, that, that then the employer needs to be compliant with. And so at the minute, what we're saying is actually all those laws, are, they tend to be governed by different bodies. Some of that might come together in the single enforcement body that we were talking about, but it won't bring everything together. Is there an overarching authority I don't know. Maybe um, maybe you should put that recommendation forward. Yeah. I, I think I think we've got to look at kind of why RTI came in in the first instance, mm. and that was to to support universal credit more than anything. So mm. that it's there more of a an information collecting piece. I think given uh, as we move into to twenty twenty, and we're talking about uh, what it's going to look like in say twenty twenty five. Experience tells me that consultation will take three, four, five years for, for anything close to what you're explaining there. So, so I, I, I don't see it being there by 2025, but, but you never know. Never in the future. Well, that ties us in nicely. We're going to open the vault. Entering the vault. One piece of advice either of you would give to someone working in payroll right now. So this is someone who perhaps is just coming into the industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're desperately trying to encourage more people to come into the industry from an earlier earlier age. What would be the one piece of advice either of you would give? I, I, I would say um, don't get yourself boxed in and keep your personal development going. So take the opportunity to keep an open mind and be really open to change. You are going to be working in a changing environment and you don't want to pitch in hole yourself into being somebody who can just do x y or z you need to be able to show that you have got a broader skill set and that you'll be adaptable and that you'll be able to meet those changing demands as change comes through so i would say continue to focus where you can on your personal development and have that open mindset to change excellent yeah and I guess from from my experience, it's probably how to build relationships within the business. Um, so we work with a lot of clients where um, actually payroll doesn't have the voice that it, it should have, um, and I, I personally think that that needs to change. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can be in a room with with a number of different people. You know, tax, finance, payroll, HR, and and sometimes it's you know payroll are saying. I think we've got a problem here. We can't do that, and they're kind of over overridden. But but I know that if 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 that payroll person has a concern, that you really need to draw that out and yeah. understand it. So so um, I think you know whether just coming into payroll uh, now or whether you've been in payroll for 20, 30 years, that's something that that would be good to see kind of change and evolve over the next. I think it's an excellent point. Finding your voice and raising the profile yeah. of payroll is something that uh, most of the industry is passionate about doing. We certainly are here in the podcast, so. Uh, great response and actually as you mentioned Helen you both of you are, are great examples that you don't coming into payroll as a payroll administrator mm-hmm. doesn't mean you have to stay in administration mm-hmm. all the way through your career there's so many angles within payroll whether it's project management implementation consulting uh, all payroll management which is equally yeah. uh, as you know as rewarding there are many avenues that a payroll career can take you on and I think that's really important that we highlight that to the individuals coming in as well if you both had the power of foresight and could change the entire payroll industry with one action or improvement, what would that action or improvement be? For me, it probably goes back to an answer that, that I gave earlier and, and getting systems um, talking to each other on a, on a single footing. Um, so every every developer has come up with their, their, own, <laughs> their own systems and, and unique offerings, which has, has made it quite challenging um, for... for for employers to actually get to where they want to go quickly. Uh, 
so I, I would probably start with a blank canvas and say, okay, we're going, we're going to at least use a common kind sure. of code. <laughs> well, you stole what I was going to say, as they always That's say. Well, let me get to you the next question. In hindsight, what's the one thing you know now that you wish you knew when you began your payroll career? Well, it goes back to actually what I did say about keeping this open mindset and really thinking about and, and developing your skills. So at the start of my career, so I've had quite a varied career. Um, at the start of the career, I perhaps didn't really see the the opportunities that might be out there and, and how you can, you know, once you start in a particular role, how you can actually change and move to complementary roles by using your skills in different ways and developing those skills and and keeping things interesting by constantly evolving. And I would say perhaps, you know, some of those earlier years, especially when I I was in civil service, I didn't realise that quite so much. So I spent a little bit longer perhaps doing one role than than I would have otherwise. So to others, I would say, you know, constantly be looking for what is out there. How can you use your skills? How can you keep things interesting? If you're happy at work and interested in what you're doing, you add more value and you're normally better at your job as well. So um, that would be my piece of advice. Fantastic. And last question to close the podcast. And you guys are both in a great position, I think, to answer this because you're seeing it from a bird's eye view for many clients. What's the most common reason for businesses failing when it comes to providing a robust payroll service? Following what others have done or following industry standard rather than understanding what the rules and legislation actually say. Um, so again, sorry to bring it back to national minimum wage again, but a lot of the issues that we, we come across and have to support clients with is because they followed the industry standard or you know that's what we did last year. And so... I, I, I think that, that's the main takeaway point for me. I don't think we can get any better than coming full circle. Right? We started with National Women Wage and Holiday Pay. We've gone right back there to finish the podcast. So thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure having you both on the podcast. I'd like to thank you, Helen Kay and Christopher Robson, for joining me today. Of course, if you would like to find out more about the Deloitte Consultancy Practice or if you'd like to contact either Chris or Helen directly, then I will put their LinkedIn profiles and the uh, website URLs for Deloitte in the episode notes so you can have a direct um, just go to the episode notes and click on their names directly to, to, to connect. Um, is there any other links or any other information you'd like to share with the listeners now that they can go that might be useful for information? So I think there may be a website that's being developed on the pay governance piece. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that is in development um, and should be ready very shortly. So what we'll do is we'll make sure that um, through our own LinkedIn pages and, and various, uh, you know, if, if they do want to click on or if anybody wants to email us, then we can give a direct um, click through then to that link as soon as it's available. Excellent. Fantastic. And if they, it is out before this episode goes live, I'll make sure that's also in the episode notes to take a quick look there first um, and hopefully you can access that directly Uh, fantastic that leaves me just to finish so of course if you are a payroll leader listening to this podcast and you have a payroll related vacancy that you need support with then i am also a payroll specialist recruiter not just podcast host and i would love to hear from you you can contact me directly at nick at jgarecruitment.com or give me a call at 01727 800 377 but otherwise we'd just like to say a huge thank you helen a huge thank you chris for joining me today thank you and i'll speak to you all again in a couple of weeks thank you so much for tuning into the payroll podcast with nick day of jga recruitment if you need help with a current payroll vacancy then please get in touch with nick and his team all contact details can be found in the episode notes 
In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.